0: 2022 marks 40 years since the release of Madonna's first single. To commemorate this, Warners will be revisiting her back catalogue with selections curated by Madonna herself. For this series of Inside the Groove, I'm joined by industry experts, also Madonna fans, as we work through the singer's albums one by one, episode by episode, to discuss how they were created, what they achieved, and what we can expect from the upcoming re-releases. You Can Dance was released on 17th November 1987. This was Madonna's first remix album and drew to a close, the first era of Madonna as a recording artist, giving new versions of her works, from the beginning up to and including songs from the True Blue era. As of 2008, it has sold 5 million copies worldwide, and whilst it may not have had the chart success of some of Madonna's studio albums, it certainly fared really well in territories where Madonna was always successful, including the US and the UK. Released as seven continuous tracks on LP, the album contained a further three songs for both the cassette and CD version, which could withstand a longer running time. And it also included a brand new recording, Spotlight, originally recorded in the sessions for True Blue. As well as mixes by Jellybean, this album would see the first long play release for a track partly remixed by Shep Pettibone, who would go on to do many remixes for Madonna as well as writing and producing some of her most famous and one loved songs including Vogue. Shep's reworking of the 1985 hit Into The Groove was at the time considered one of the greatest DJ remixes ever and still sounds fresh today. Originally designed as an accompaniment to the True Blue album, its cover artwork and typography may look primitive by today's standards, but the artistry of that Herbert shoots is outstanding and we'll be talking in detail about that. Having covered the Who's That Girl soundtrack extensively back in Series 3, we'll also be taking time to discuss the artwork for that release and the accompanying singles, some of which were released around a similar time to You Can Dance. Joined by music journalist and biographer Lucy O'Brien, fashion photographer Jonathan Daniel Price and graphic designer Peter Falou, we're going to give you the whole story behind Madonna's first remix project and movie soundtrack and discuss what we might be able to look forward to in the upcoming reissue of this undeniable classic. I'll be paying special attention to the new song Spotlight and giving you the story of its creation, so just sit back, relax, listen to your heart and step inside the groove. I'm Edward Russell, I'm your podcast host, and I'd like to thank all the kind patrons who donations allowed me to take several weeks off work to research, write, and record all seven episodes of Inside the Groove. In return, they had all of those episodes in their mailbox by the end of September. Whilst the rest of you, well, you have to wait. So do consider becoming a patron and supporting this podcast. Head to www.insidethegroove.co.uk. Thank you. So you can dance. Well, this was Madonna's first proper retrospective release with her record company really keen to capitalise on her back catalogue in the wake of the success of True Blue. It was originally put together in time for the Christmas 86 market. However, the release was shelved for a year given the success of Madonna's third studio album. They sort of thought, why muddy the waters and confuse the audience by having a second potential Christmas present album out there when they could still be shifting units of True Blue. Similarly, with the potential of a possible fifth single, not to mention new songs for Madonna's upcoming movie, which at the time was called Slammer, plus a world tour, they could end up with a seemingly enviable position of having too much Madonna product out there. Now, it's hard to imagine that being a problem today, but the music industry was different back then and there were fewer releases but they shifted just considerably more units Now, by the time that you can dance hit the record stores in november 87 madonna had released additional material and reworked many of her older tracks for the world tour some of these new versions were inspired by the remixes done by jellybean and shep Pettibone. in particular uh, shep's mix of into the groove for you can dance But it must have seemed the other way round for the 1987 audience. And whilst I've been preparing this episode, I've been trying to think about how I felt about Madonna at the time. I was incredibly excited by her music, but she seemed to be everywhere and she was literally getting bad press. Her and Sean were known as the Poison Pens. And I've got Lucy O'Brien, author of the Madonna biography, Like an Icon, with me here. Lucy, I'd like to talk to you, if I may, about Madonna's sort of presence in the media at the time, because it it seemed like she was everywhere. I can remember the summer. It seemed that every day there were pictures of her, either jogging around Hyde Park or or out in Leeds uh, at parties and stuff like that. I, I don't know what your memories are from that period.
1: And I remember going to see um, the Who's That Girl tour in 1987. Um, she was hounded by the tabloids at that point. Mm. Um, you know, her marriage to Sean Penn was going through its ups and downs even then. And he was, um, <laughs> you know, just seemed to be in constant battle with paparazzi. And there was something a little bit brattish about, they came across as quite rattish and that, mm that bratish energy is there on Who's That Girl, the film. Mm -hmm. You know, it's her experimenting with a different look, experimenting with style and um, Hollywood and kind of bringing in, like causing a commotion produced by Stephen Bray. He's always great on those up-tempo, more dance-inspired numbers. Mm -hmm. So I felt around the Who's That Girl time that... One thing that she did incredibly well was the stage show. You got yeah. a real sense of, wow, you know, she's really found something here which is very conceptual, you know, using the artist Tamara Olympica and using really kind of inventive backdrops and reimagining, even then starting to reimagine her hits. So you're really aware this isn't just a hoofer, this isn't just, you know, mm. uh, a, a singer... Um, here today gone tomorrow you know she she is a conceptual artist as well you know that that was really impressive and I think that she herself was going through quite a transitional time in her life in her personal life and in her artistic life too I think I suspect she was starting to feel a little bit frustrated by that teen pop box that she was in and she was looking to break out I mean she was you know, approaching 30 years old by then. So obviously there was something within her that was pushing her to stretch herself more, definitely.
0: Thank you, Lucy, for your insights. And I'll speak to you again in the next episode. Now, I'm looking at the You Can Dance cover now. I've got it in front of me on 12-inch vinyl, and I absolutely love it. And it's reminded me that one of the things I love about Madonna is her imperfections. Um, She's not the most beautiful woman in the world. You know, she has a square jaw and a small mouth and slim nose. She's not the greatest singer in the world. You know, she can't do those big aerobic vocal exercises that Mariah does, and her early songs are quite squeaky. But I love her face. I, I find her beautiful. I, I love her voice. I think it's the most um, dramatic voice out there. And it, it's because of her imperfections that I think she is the perfect. Pop star, and I kind of think that about the You Can Dance album because it's got this weird cutout on it and the, the strange sort of um, handwritten typography, and I love it. It's just so striking and so brilliant. Um, I'm joined now by uh, fashion photographer Jonathan Daniel Price and graphic designer and creative director Peter Falloon to talk about this package because it's just brilliant. I mean, right there from that, I, I think it's a, a, another Herbert's shoot, Jonathan, on the front cover.
2: So you're right. It's another herb picture. And um, and what I love about this, but I've heard is not intentional. And Peter, you might be able to confirm this because you seem to have the insider knowledge, is that it wasn't intentionally an aesthetic follow on from True Blue, although as companion pieces, they work. Well, you know, it's it's very uh, striking in a similar way to True Blue, but with a completely different, you know, it's crisp, captivating. She's got this expressive face and and you had mentioned how her voice and her face have these similar qualities. And I think I can really see that actually her face and voice are both great at conveying emotion. And then if you look at the image closely, there's a bit of movement in the body, which says that the it is a slow shutter speed even though her face is very, very crisp. You know, this will be a really simple lighting setup. And I think the original images are just a white background. So it's very graphic. It's very clear. And 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 in those sorts of images, the styling is really important. So obviously we see here a hearse really stepping into her love of Latin culture, which is used again later in her career. She's got the female troubadour outfit on and the lacy bustier that she loves for this whole campaign. You know, we see her do this in Living for Love later on as well she's liking this off the shoulder moment in in this artwork. I think also what's interesting is as far as I know across three albums True Blue, Who's That Girl and You Can Dance it's, it's really the only time we've had Madonna with the same hair. You know it's it's a close together, you know it's still within a, a year or two of each other but but it's aesthetically very similar. Um and, and I love it. I think, you know, there's a, it's a bit sketchy with the cutout of our body, but, but I think it's great, you know, it works well. And, and, you know, I think for that time period, you know, we're not talking about Photoshop and a computer, we're talking about hand cutting. So yeah, I'm sure Peter, you know more about this.
0: <laughs> yeah. That would have been probably photograph, cut out, put on the transparency onto another background. Yeah. Ten layers. The, I,
3: the, I, the reason that I asked to talk about it is because it is a feat of engineering yeah we look at it now and we want to tidy it up we want to perfect it like if you look at like where the sombrero sits on the back of a head like there's a white halo around it and it, yeah it was not shot on a red background nowadays you would like to think that somebody would have the forethought to think yeah let's shoot it on black or on red but it, it wasn't it was all shot on white so as Jonathan said it is painstaking somebody has scalpeled or masked every bit of that photo out and you, you couldn't blend, you couldn't like soften the edges of anything. So the asymmetry of the image couldn't be photoshopped either. So you have what you have, but for some reason it takes on like a completely iconic nature. And I think it's her first piece of actual graphic design as an album cover. All of the others are always image led photography with a little bit of branding. This is the first one where it was like, no, no, this campaign is going to be red. And it's so strong. And to put them next to True Blue, you can sort of see them as like a counterbalance. It's the beautiful, cool, like 1950s. And then it's the red hot dance 80s and i just love the the pairing and the way the two play off each other but yeah again it's jerry hayden's handwriting and i found a little bit of an interview as like how, sh- how she'd achieve that it's paintbrush and to do that like freehand it would then have to have been treated like a f- photograph so it would have been photographed again rescanned in and then almost like you have to like negative the space we can do all this in photoshop in a, a second but back in like 1987, 88, this was a mission and I think they achieved it beautifully. And one of the other light like additions that I love is, I don't know if it came on the original, but the band that went round it, it was, that is beautiful. Type Talking off. about the
0: paper band that accompanied the yeah. uh, release. Yeah. 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 yeah.
3: And it was the first time that, yeah, we have all of these amazing forms of communication now, but this is the first time that Madonna had spoken to her fans in an album context. So,
0: so can like, you tell us for anybody that's not aware of it, what what, what was on that band exactly?
3: It's, so it's, it's written by a, a journalist, but it's just a beautiful take on like what Madonna means to the dance floor. And it's very inspiring, loads of great quotes from the songs that are included on the album, but it was just this amazing mission statement of like who she is and what she does. And it's something that gets lost. I, th- I think like the, the great thing about the, the podcast is it, it explores what her music is. This guy summed up beautifully what she is to the dance floor and made these amazing comparisons to like what she is to dance music. And the thing that is inspiring for a graphic designer for something like this is beautifully typeset. So it's just this really thin, skinny bit of type. And I must have poured over that over and over again it's just this is beautiful and the whole album has like a real packaged feel it felt special and very different to anything else that she'd done so even on the back cover it's still a great image of her same thing again some some poor person's had to scalpel out every flourish on the side of her dress um but it's just set beautifully like the the, the three songs on each side it's just phenomenal typography skills and you overlook things like that now, but it, that whole campaign managed to take a very fresh scripted font and marry it to a very old fashioned font. And somehow the whole thing worked beautifully, but it's a concept that came out of a very, I would say simple photo shoot, but they created something very iconic that sits beautifully in her, her back catalog. I really wish she'd done this sort of album more. I, I want You Can Dance out of every three yeah, albums yeah. that she's done. Mm-hmm. It It's the one album that I go back to over and over again, just for the way it looks. And I just love looking at the photo. I love everything about it. It's just, it's got that box set feel, even though it's not, it's just an album. But yeah, it's the beginning of her understanding what it is that she's amazing at and giving the fans what they want.
0: So I'd like to talk to you both actually about technology, et cetera. I think Photoshop might have been around in 1986 or an early version of it, but it wasn't really used in the same way as it is now. I mean, ubiquitously now. So to touch up a photo, as it's or a hair out of place literally was painted over Jonathan at the time. Is that how it would have been done?
2: Yes, exactly. So you take the image and they had... Uh... Yeah, a paintbrush and paint and you could, I mean, that's why it's called uh, retouching. Retouching. That's why it's called retouching because you're retouching the image. And there's a lot of terminology for today's photography, like dodge and burn an image you know to make a shadow darker you would burn it and to make it lighter you would dodge the light so that there wasn't as much exposure in that area there is a nostalgic romance that i have to that time you know i I work with film a lot too and you know i learned in a dark room even though the technology was already there (laughs) yeah and even though you can create the same effect digitally there is there are traces of the hand which are unreplicable in a digital format obviously i mentioned that with the 35th anniversary edition of true blue and yeah i feel like there is a sort of human care element to this even cutting it out it might have looked to ri messy but that's what makes it human that's what makes it you know a creative process rather than perfection
3: it's just it was manual labor it was really really hard work like to, to get a print it was expensive so If you're having to have things scanned, the the scanning technology at the time was just to get something high res enough to print. So you haven't scanned things at 300 DPI. Those, those kinds of things only existed in like very few companies. So to have a digital scanner or a a photo scanner at that time, as it would have been, you were looking at thousands of pounds just to get the image transferred onto a digital format.
0: Presumably, sometimes, in some instances, if you got something wrong, you were stuck. There was no undo button then.
3: Yeah, it was. uh, (laughs) Yeah, you're a bit bit like dancing with a shark. You will have had a team of people who will have been looking out for mistakes. So that's where proof checkers and things like that come from. And the level of sign off that you have to have on a piece of physical artwork, you would always get a a box at the bottom for the, the seven or eight people that had had to check it off. But yeah, things do slip through the net. There's a few things that go unnoticed or don't get noticed until they're out in the real world, but yeah, it would have cost thousands to make one tiny mistake, so something like, um, you can dance. Yeah, it's an achievement.
2: So, Thinking also of that, I mean, it's a completely different business model, also. You know, like you're saying, the teams of people, you know, Her Brits will have had studio assistants and retouchers, you know, a whole team. Whereas now, you know, you can have a handful of people on a big scene as a somewhat big shoot for a big brand with me. And record companies at that point were obviously making money from selling records. So the budgets that were put behind this kind of thing were huge by comparison to even the biggest artists of today. Graphic designer friends of mine always talk about today's technology with typesetting and how they haven't learned the original way of kerning the letters and all this, and so it flows completely incorrectly. Which I think young people wouldn't even notice.
3: Yeah. Talk,
0: talk about tell us what kerning is because I know because I worked <laughs> in branding, but you tell us about it's,
3: it's all of the little intricacies of when you were hand setting type. So in the olden days, in the seventies. that you'd have a box of type and it would be like hundreds of little tiny letters. And if you wanted to spread a word out, which is what Kerning is, you would have to put these tiny little lead blocks in between all the letters. It, it was an art because the gaps between certain letters are not dictated. So you couldn't just put three blocks in. When it was an I, a narrow little figure, you'd have to overcompensate. So when people were doing typography in the old style. It was very, very hard work and labor intensive. By the time we got to sort of, and and that's why previous albums, all you would have on the cover was the the title and the artist's name. So it was hard work. By the time we got to, um, You Can Dance, there was probably a little bit more digital technology involved. Font foundries and typographic companies had started supplying the transfers. So you could set your time using transfers. It was slightly easier. But yeah, it, everything will have been done on a piece of paper and a layout board and then photographed. The album artwork will exist as like this ridiculous layered file of all sorts of mess and hidden things. But someone will have had the joy of photographing that and making it look like what, it, what we see today.
0: Let's hope that, you know, they go back and re-photograph this for the remasters. Because I mean, I've seen it happen with other re-releases where they, they've been able to do that. In some instances, it no longer
3: exists. There is an issue. Like I, I look forward to her reissuing the albums, but I just desperately hope that she goes back to the photographers because the imagery that she's created is phenomenal. But when you try and blow it up or redigitize it, so like the reissue of Like a Virgin, if you look really closely, you can actually see the original print marks in it. It's... I know it's it, it's a difficult thing to work out whose estate owns what. A lot of the photographers she's worked with have sadly died, so you, you might not be able to get the transparency. But yeah, it's to create those incredible, crisp, original way that these things were seen, you really do need to go back to the source. But it, it would be great to sort of see some of these put back together.
0: It's interesting. I've deliberately not bought any re-releases
2: of the Like a Prayer album on vinyl because it looks like it's been in the shop window for six years Mm -hmm. yeah it's a real shame so you know if you think about the cost and the teams that are involved apparently i read that sire records art department probably our friend jerry ordered herb to create 40 test prints from that shoot which is a lot if you think about the amount of labor you know today that would be going through the digital files and sending them on email but then it's someone going to into a dark room creating a print if they're not in the same office, mailing it, mailing it back with corrections, with notes. You know, these are long drawn out processes. So even just to create an album, print it, get it stocked in shops, all of this stuff is a lot longer process than it is today. Absolutely. And in terms
0: of, you know, pressing, it, it was different then because there were more pressing plants, but it would, there still would have been a lead time. I was always slightly annoyed that the cover of Vogue had a pitch from Express Yourself on it. Well, yeah, they, they wouldn't have had a shot from the Vogue. The Vogue video was shot at the end of February. Yeah, they probably wouldn't have had
3: it at the time because the single came out in April. So. But it's the same technique again. You can see like the terrible cutout and it's, it's from yeah. a piece of film. It's not from a photograph, but yeah, it's still an amazing shot. But yeah, it, it yeah, could have yeah. been better. It, mm. Exactly. So further reading
2: or the rabbit hole to go down if you've enjoyed the You Can Dance cover artwork? <laughs> so i love a cover that she did for rolling stone she seemed to appear in rolling stone a lot in this period and again it's herbert's he's done all through these years it came out about a month before you can dance did so it must have been direct promotion for this record and i think it's from the same shoot as the album cover so it's got the original white backdrop but she just looks really angular and striking and and i love that photo peter
3: anything from you yeah, I would say, have a look at the special editions that were also issued. I think they were for press or radio only, but they're all on a white background, which is what the original photo sheet was. And then they've put the red typography over the top and they're just as beautiful, but it's, I think Spotlight got a release in Japan that has kind of a dodgy cover. But then there's another interesting crossover with The Look of Love. So the look of love must have come out just slightly on the cusp of this album. Yeah. And they tried it's to February, make, I think. they tried to make the look of love look like, so it felt as if they had cohesion, they don't. And it's the same thing again. It's a really beautiful photo of Madonna, but someone's cut it out horribly, but then it's still got the script paintbrush look on it. So yeah, I definitely say go and look it out cause it's, it falls into two categories, the, the things that belong to You Can Dance are all phenomenal and beautiful. But yeah, The Look of Love is an interesting one.
2: I've always wondered about that single, actually, because I have the 7-inch with the original photo of the blue pool in the background. It is, and it matches the song so well as well. This other version, which I've never seen in person, just on images, which, like you're saying, is like you can dance. I mean, the music, it's not even the same style. So yeah, it surprised me.
3: And they've tried to do Um, the effect with a soft photo. At least the Herb ones, it's a hard edge, so you've got a Mm -hmm. a chance. But yeah.
0: You guys are so geeky. I love it. I hope the listeners are enjoying it too. Um, Jonathan and Peter, don't go anywhere. I'm going to ask you to come back in a short while. But now I want to give a history of the remix album and find out exactly where you can dance fits in. The concept of a remix has been around ever since multi-track recording has been in existence. Even those early Beatles records, which were made on four tracks and then mixed down to mono, got the remix treatment when producer George Martin did some test mixes in stereo, panning the vocals sort of hard left and the drums right. And, and these actually got a release. So technically, they're, they're the first remix albums. But remixes themselves started to sort of take off during the days of disco. And that pretty much originated on the New York dance floors in the mid-70s. DJs would want to have a song run for longer and might even have a copy of the same song playing on separate decks, so they could mix between the two different versions and keep the audience on the floor for a little bit longer. But it was producer and DJ Tom Moulton who really started the trend when he had the opportunity to do specific extended mixes for acts using the multitrack. Not only did this allow him to create the breakdown, and that's the part of a remix where it effectively stops and builds up again, but The popularity of these mixes and those by other DJs led to the birth of the 12-inch single as a format because a lot of these new versions were too long to fit onto a 7-inch single and so record companies started to release club mixes of popular dance songs in this larger and obviously longer format. By the time you get to the beginning of the 1980s, having an extended version of a modern-sounding pop song was commonplace, and certainly there were extended mixes produced for a good 50%, I guess, of chart music. Although 12-inch singles weren't easily to you know easily obtainable you couldn't go into Woolies or something and get them you'd have to go into an HMV or a specialist record shop but that would change over the coming years and what also happened around this time was club mixes of songs where DJs and producers like Arthur Baker would deliberately heighten the mix of the drums and bass to give a stronger groove as we advanced through the 80s it actually changed the production a bit more hence creating dance floor hits for artists like Bruce Springsteen and Fleetwood Mac and you also got dub mixes. Now that's the sort of name given to offcuts, if you like, the extended passages that didn't form a full song, but allowed the remixes to sort of experiment further and create non-vocal versions of remixes. And technically, though that main vocal might be missing, it would allow a DJ to mix in extra beats as required or segue into another song and all that kind of stuff and make a more unique experience on the dance floor. The first remix album came in 1982, when Human League's seminal 1981 album Dare was remixed as Love and Dancing. And like You Can Dance, all the songs were segued together to form two continuous mixes, one on either side. Others followed, and it was largely a kind of a British thing at the time. You had acts like Eurythmics and Howard Jones release either retrospectives of their work, or like Human League, they, it would be an opportunity to focus solely on a particular studio release. The Americans were later to adopt, and that's kind of ironic really, when you consider that they sort of invented the remix or the dance mix itself. But the trend for new variations accelerated around the time that Madonna was releasing her first singles. And of course, as you know, her former boyfriend, John Jellybean Benitez, was a remixer. And in 83, 84, another figure to come to prominence was Shep Pettibone. Another New York DJ and music producer and by the mid-1980s, by the mid-1980s, he was remixing all of the big artists, especially the British ones like Five Star, Kim Wilde and Pet Shop Boys and his reworkings became more than edits and he started to be credited as additional production by, where he had significantly changed a track and recorded new instrumentation. True Blue received this treatment with his Colour Mix and pretty soon after, though not heard until the release of You Can Dance, he did one of of his finest works into the groove, and the addition of a jazzy piano line by David Cole is detailed in the episode of this podcast on that song. So do check it out. By the time Over You Can Dance's release, remix albums were fairly commonplace. The other big seller from 1987 being Janet Jackson's Control remixes. However, You Can Dance is currently listed as the second biggest selling remix album of all time, just a few certified units behind Michael Jackson's Blood on the Dance Floor. As a Madonna fan, I find it hard to separate out all the different things that happened in 1987. You had the end of True Blue as an album. You had the Who's That Girl movie. You had the Who's That Girl soundtrack. And, of course, the tour was also called Who's That Girl. Plus, you had You Can Dance remixes at the end of the year. Um... I kind of addressed a lot of this when I did the episode on Who's That Girl. But of course, back then, I wasn't talking about the artwork. So I've still got Jonathan and Peter here. And I'd like to get them to cover not just the album cover, but, but the single covers that accompanied everything in 1987 for the Who's That Girl project. Now, obviously, the, the cover is very much based on the movie poster. Jonathan, what what can you tell me about that cover artwork? hmm
2: so i can't actually find the photographer for the album artwork it's credited to griffin dunn on a few websites which is her co-star and i think it's quite unlikely he shot it seeing as he's also in the frame with her on a couple of the images but this is you know obviously very playful it could have been shot by jan de Bont, the director of photography of the movie but i, I don't really know it, from my eye What I really see is the character Nikki from the film, who's that girl, you know, this is Nikki, not Madonna. She's got the very white hair, her pale powdered skin and the black eyebrows. And, and it's, is this cartoon like character, you know, and it feels also aesthetically like a film poster rather than a necessarily a record cover, you know, very classic studio shot, white background, again, probably shot at the beginning or end of production of the film. What I love about this whole package though, is I. I've seen in the US press pack, they did a promotion with uh, color slides from the movie that Warner Brothers put out. And I think that's really a cute sort of uh, promotional tool. And a lot of those slides and stills were used as the artwork for the singles, for example, like you're saying. I feel like the styling here isn't particularly Madonna. It's a strange phase. You know, she's got this black PVC sort of catsuit with a tutu and polka dots. And I mean, I guess she does kind of carry this, kooky style into some of the numbers on the tour but it's not something that really is synonymous with madonna's aesthetic to me and i feel like this is as much about the graphics as it is the photography what do you guys think yeah it's quite cartoon like intentionally i guess peter
3: yeah and it's also very 80s it's like when you sort of think of other films that around at the time was a style that was being used quite a lot this sort of not quite perfect, little bit wonky here and there. It, it's, it's got a real eighties aesthetic to it. It looks like Jonathan said, it is very much borrowed from the film poster. It's a reversion with a slightly different updated crop to it. But yes, yeah, it, I like the fact that she then spun it out over all three singles. So it was strong enough as a word mark and a visual to see through the whole campaign, it, it, again, similar to the work that she'd done with you can dance it won't have been easy to get the little guy stood next to the word it's it's Mm. again a a lot of photo trickery. again like the image i agree with you guys it's not a captivating image and it actually i think it looks quite sort of like it needed a bit of retouching and i know we sort of said that possibly that was too expensive but it, it doesn't hold up to today's eyes I, am especially on like an LP, it's a big photo. I, I had it originally as a cassette, so it's very forgiving. As an LP sized image, it, it doesn't really hold up. I love the pose and I love the eye contact and the, the visual connection between her eyes and Griffin Dunn at the top is really sweet, but it's, it's not executed brilliantly. I think the thing for a graphic designer to get hold of about this period is the actual title sequence. And that's just such a phenomenal work of genius by animates animator called Rick Nation. I think if we'd have had a little bit of that follow over into the artwork, that could have been awesome. But again, we're back to that thing about what a, a record label will share with a film company and vice versa. So again, I can't find any information on who designed it. There seems to be a blip, I think the same as you said. Um, an engineer has been credited with the album design and I think that's completely wrong it's just somebody's obviously copied it off a website and and got it wrong (laughs) I can imagine that you're given a kit of parts when a film's released and I think that just went over to the record label and it is quite a slavish reproduction of what the film company put together in an album format so it feels like a film soundtrack the way the types laid out the way that the images are portrayed on the bat, it feels like the 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 front of the movie and then the 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 inside of the movie. So I think as a like showing that it's a soundtrack, it does its job really well. But yeah, it's not one of my favourites, but I understand why it is made.
0: Well I'll tell you what is one of my favourites and I'm I'm hoping it is yours is the causing a commotion cover in terms of that typography. It's fantastic.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and colours. It's I mean <laughs> I would love to know if Jerry Hyde knew how lucky she was. I would love to know if she was even a fan because she seems to do some amazing work for Madonna and, like, really has created some iconic artwork for her. And the Causing a Commotion one, I, I think it's the first time we see her love of holding a gun so it's, it started that that long relationship i don't think you get away with it as an album, as a single cover nowadays it was brave but yeah it, i think even just the little quirky graphic conveys the quirkiness of the song as well so it, it all all three of the singles from this she carries over that branding of the, i think you can look at it and you know it belongs to the film and uh, to use the film stills as part of the imagery on the front and the back so like well, all of the singles from this era, the front and the back are just as good as one another. You can enjoy looking at the, the cosmic motion back cover just as much. Yeah. Really, really, really cool set of imagery. When True Blue was reformatted, so obviously it's first incarceration was as a, a 12 inch. That's what the, the image was like composed for. It's the first time that when new technology came along. So we then had the glory of tapes which I think for any graphic designer was a nightmare and some of the awful things that have been done to Madonna's 12 inch artwork on cassette is diabolical. It's the first time that one of Madonna's album covers on cassette actually looked really good. So you did actually get the full portrait. You actually got to see the bottom of the leather jacket. You got a little bit more of the neckline. It's a beautiful photo in its portrait format and it's for the two to sit together. It's incredible to have something that works as a 12-inch and then isn't a compromise on a cassette. Very, very rare that that was ever managed to get.
0: Jonathan, Peter, thank you very much. I'm going to put you into the freezer until I start the Like a Prayer episode. We have a lot to talk about then, so I shall be defrosting you in a short while. But in the meantime, I'd like to end this episode by talking about a new track, kind of new track, that appeared on You Can Dance. And that is, of course, Spotlight. I like Spotlight, but it's not my favourite song from that period. It kind of feels like the end of that period in some ways. And Madonna would return with a very different sound on Like a Prayer. But I know a lot of you really enjoy this particular song. But also there's an interesting story behind it as well. In 1984, following the success of Holiday, the song's writers, Lisa Stevens and Curtis Hudson, submitted this song to Madonna for consideration. Curtis Hudson later said, During the time right after Holiday, when we'd go to her place and write, I presented Spotlight. I gave her a complete song, Spotlight. I'd actually written it in case Warners asked her for another holiday. She said she loved it and felt spiritual about it, but she didn't use it or contact me again about it. Here's another excerpt from that demo. Spotlight ended up being recorded by Madonna and Stephen Bray during the sessions for the True Blue album, but was ultimately left off that release. However, it made its way onto You Can Dance. It officially was released as a single in Japan in April 1988, and it charted and did well there, partly because it had been used in an advert featuring Madonna and a series of commercials for the electrics company Mitsubishi. However, it also managed to get some play in the US, enough for it to Chart at number 37 in the Billboard Airplay chart, although it never got the actual commercial release that way. Madonna's version was fairly different to the one that was submitted by Curtis and Lisa, and they had this to say sometime later. It sort of popped out of nowhere when she was getting ready to do You Can Dance, said Curtis Hudson. Her lawyer contacted her manager and said we need to talk. We went over and met with him. She and Stephen Bray had already done the song, but I hadn't even heard the version they had done. They took the demo I had given her and worked it into a different song. They gave me credit since I had the original song copyrighted. I would have collaborated and made changes, but I was told, well, she's too busy. She's overseas doing a movie. I was okay with it, though, because they gave me credit. But the original song had a certain magic, and the changes took that essence away. The original spotlight was another holiday, the rhythm, the basic groove. I think they were trying to get away from that sound. Sometimes artists don't want their sound to be identified with specific writers. That's it for this episode. I'm about to thaw out Jonathan and Peter so that we can record Like a Prayer. If you can't wait for Like a Prayer and you also want I'm Breathless and Immaculate Collection too, become a patron. www.insidethegroove.co.uk Bye for now.